with all the hassle over Brexit and complaints nationalist parties are voicing in a growing number of European parliaments, it helps to remember the advantages of being a member of the European Union. It constitutes an enormous market, and this is one of the things that many Europeans don't feel or are unable to feel exactly how important the institutions are for them. Coming up, friends from Europe share their perspectives on the political challenges they're facing. We'll also look into why the Swiss like to be different. They even have a wild animal mascot to represent what being neutral means to them. It will be a fortress that will be very difficult to conquer. A hedgehog is not going to attack you, but you attacking the hedgehog, you might get hurt. And we'll get tips for vacationing in Hungary. But if you try to learn some of the language, you'll see why it's a challenge. Well, the problem is that uh, we have more exceptions from the rules than rules itself. In or out of Europe, and travels in Hungary. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Seems like there's one on every block. Coming up, we'll get acquainted with Hungary. It's a tourism destination with an illustrious history, and it's also a country that finds it hard to talk with its neighbors. We'll also explore how political trends in Hungary and elsewhere are challenging the values on which the European Union was founded. That's just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with a look at what's missing in the middle of the EU. Switzerland. They don't participate in the Confederation or use the common currency all of its neighbors share. Still, the independent Swiss are a model of prosperity and efficiency. To shed light on what makes the Swiss so different, we're joined now by Miriam Grobe. She's worked as a translator for the Swiss Parliament and now leads tour groups from her home base in Lausanne. Also joining us is Fabian Ruger. He's a historian who grew up in Berlin and now lives in Maine and has been guiding tourists around Switzerland for many years. So, Fabian, why is Switzerland different? I mean, you see a map of the EU and there's a hole in the middle of it, and it's Switzerland. It's the only country in the whole of Europe, for sure, that became a democracy out of various parts that wanted to work together. If you look at any other nation in Europe, they have a different history. You have one part of the country that becomes stronger, it conquers everything else, forms the capital, and then democracy comes later. The Swiss started with communal democracies allying up. So if you will, they were the first European Union, in a way, hmm. and everybody else came later. And ironically today, they've chosen not to join the European Union. How many cantons are in the country? 26. And it started just with three, like America started with 13 colonies, and it grew and grew. And Miriam, your family has been in Switzerland for how long? Uh, it goes back to the 16th century, for sure. This is so what we know. know. 500 years. Wow. Yes. And this little country, way up in the mountains, has four different language groups, 20-some different proud cantons, and its own system of government. So why did Switzerland choose not to join the European Union? I think it is quite linked to what Fabian just said, to keep this democracy alive, because people felt that... Um, if Switzerland joined the European Union, we gave away a lot of our power to decide because then some foreign country would decide for us or other countries would and, decide and for us. And Switzerland has worked very hard to organize its society and they don't want people from Poland or Ireland or Portugal to tell them, you know, how to pay for their roads. This was one of the reasons. So when you look back now, it's been a, a little while and Switzerland is still outside of the EU. What are the pros and what are the cons? Well... The pros are definitely that Switzerland can still decide on its own. And especially when we 
going to talk about money, uh, Switzerland kept the Swiss franc, and mm-hmm. this has been for the Swiss economy. What would the downside be? There must be a sort of a frustration. If you're not in the EU, you're not in the big club. What's the problem and, with that? Yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to point out the plus side before. Um, yes, we are not part of the club. And in the end, uh, Switzerland takes over a lot of laws of the European Union. So you, you get to pick and choose what you want no. to incorporate. No? Of the European <laughs> Union? No. This is uh, a big myth. Even a lot of Swiss people believe in that, that uh-huh. we can pick. But no, we are too small. The European Union doesn't let us pick. They say, you have to apply that. A lot of uh, laws are just taken over quite secretly. That means that we don't have to vote on on these laws. A lot of regulations, we just have to apply them. You have to to take them. them. So your government says the only way we can exist efficiently is to embrace this European Union law, and then tomorrow you have to follow that law. We do. What's an example? We are just currently having this huge debate in Switzerland about taxation of uh, companies. Mm -hmm. This is something that the European Union decided that uh, a special tax that Switzerland applied is not legal in the European Union. And we are not part of the European Union. But the European Union tells Switzerland to just abandon that tax. So they dictate that to you and your government says, well, in this case, we have to obey the European Union. Yes. And this is a huge public debate in Switzerland right now because people feel (laughs) frustrated. Frustrated, yeah. So Fabian, in Switzerland, what would be an example of a frustration beyond that one that the Swiss would have a downside of not being in the European Union? There are various ways in which Switzerland can simply not influence what the decision-making in Brussels is because they're not sitting at the table. So when the European Union, for instance, decides on a new technical standard for whatever you like, that becomes the standard in the entire market. And if you're going to play in the market, you have if to have that standard. If you want to sell to that market, you have to fit to so the technical they, standard. So if they say only uh, Phillips-head screwdrivers and, and no straight screwdrivers, well, you have to do that or you've got nobody to buy your things. Exactly. And then you can, if you're a Swiss small company, and of course Swiss manufacturing exports a lot into the yeah. European Union market, if any standard gets changed in Brussels, they have to follow suit. And in the end, they will have to change their laws, otherwise they cannot so I'm, export. I'm, I'm trying to think about this in American terms. If the United States of America was 49 proud states and Nebraska was an independent country in the middle and it wanted to have a different size of train track, its trains couldn't go anywhere. Exactly. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our guides are providing insight into what makes Switzerland different from its European Union neighbors. We're talking with Fabian Ruger and Miriam Grove. What about this euro, anyways? Uh, You know, most countries in Europe have the euro. You cross the border, you use the same money. Switzerland decided to keep the Swiss franc. Why? Well, they would have had to become a member of the European Union. uh, Okay, so because they're not a member, they can't have the euro anyways. That's, That's hurdle number one. But they've got this unique banking system where I think if you're rich and you have a lot of money and you want to store it in Switzerland... You don't get very good interest, and you have bank fees to the point where I believe you're getting negative interest. You pay to let Switzerland keep your millions. That's an occurrence that happened after the financial crisis when everybody wanted to park their money in a safe place. I don't think it's the case anymore that foreign money parked in Swiss banks has to pay a negative interest rate. But in any case, the IRS forced Switzerland to divulge any money that Americans keep in Switzerland to the IRS. So, Miriam, this has changed. What about the uh, the secret banking in Switzerland? It doesn't exist anymore, especially for American citizens. So if um, I found a million dollars under a tree and I wanted to not tell anybody, I couldn't go over to Switzerland and put it in a bank secretly. I have a little story. I opened a bank account. Being a Swiss citizen in Switzerland, I spent half an hour, and I'm not exaggerating, filling out forms for the RSA. 
For the IRS. For the IRS. IRS. Yeah, because America asked the Swiss banks if they wanted to keep doing business with America to declare any bank account opened by any person. Not Every only person, yeah, not so, just Americans. Yeah. And if Switzerland was going to play ball with America, they had to show all that information. Yeah, and I had to fill out these forms. And I'm not American. I have nothing to do. I had nothing to do with America at that My moment. My goodness. But the banking industry is a big part of the economy of Switzerland uh, because I, I think you, you don't produce that much stuff as what you make in the banking industry. And people give you the money, and Swiss banks use it like any bank but they don't have to pay very high interest for it. So their cost of getting this money is very small. Um, or if I'm wrong, correct me. <laughs> no, 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 um, um, it's true. Well, what Switzerland still is, is a very safe place to put your money. Right. And then this is linked to the uh, moment when Switzerland kept the Swiss franc and could decide on its own policy. Okay, because if currency. Switzerland wanted the euro, they would have to compromise all of their banking styles to yeah. conform to Europe's banking mm -hmm. styles. Yes. And Switzerland wants a little more independence with their, their financial industry. Yes. Hmm. Now, if a traveler comes into Switzerland, he can use the euro in most cases. Uh, Fabian, when you bring a group in, yeah. they can spend euros or Swiss yes, francs. They will yeah. take euros, but of course you get your change in Swiss francs back. You know, they will, every merchant will have to you know, exchange the euros into Swiss francs. We're examining Swiss differences from the rest of Europe on today's Travel with Rick Steves, and our tour guides are Miriam Grobe and Fabian Ruger. You know, when we think about Switzerland, I'm always thinking about this neutrality. Switzerland is this alpine neutral state. It stays out of the wars. It doesn't have to get bombed. I mean, it's kind of a nice situation. Fabian, when you do think of the, the, the defense of Switzerland, uh, it, it is known as, it, it manages to stay out of the wars, but it's, it's highly uh, guarded. It's quite a defensive fortress, isn't it? Yes, and its history, if you look back into the Middle Ages, is not as peaceful and neutral as we would like to believe now. There was, in fact, a brief moment between 1470 and 1515 where Switzerland was, uh, was a central power and majorly influenced European history by wiping out the Kingdom of Burgundy. Uh, they controlled good parts of northern Italy, but then that brief period came to a quick end when the French brought cannons to the battlefield, and that spelled the end of uh, Swiss military prowess in Central Europe. So the French had a technological advantage over the Swiss, and that put them in their place. But today, when you travel around Switzerland, you will see military monuments. It is a country that prides itself ever since that period for staying out of large European conflicts, but the icon mostly chosen for this philosophy that they have is the hedgehog, in that uh, it will be a fortress that will be very difficult to conquer. A hedgehog is not going to attack you, but you attacking the hedgehog, you might get hurt. That's kind of the philosophy behind it. I like that, and I know uh, Switzerland called itself neutral, so it could have certain benefits, but during the Cold War... I remember famously Khrushchev called Switzerland's neutrality charming nonsense. What was frustrating Khrushchev, Miriam, about Switzerland's, quote, neutrality? Yeah, because Switzerland is neutral when um, it profits Switzerland, and it's not neutral <laughs> when they can get any profit out of it. Fabian, when we think about Switzerland, we have that unique government, uh, a mountain fortress, and a, a novel system of the executive branch that's not like our executive branch here in the United States. In a nutshell, what is the Swiss executive? You have an all-party government of seven ministers. The president is a rotating position between those seven ministers and is basically just a position on paper so that the Swiss government has somebody to present as their head of state. But the president doesn't really have any extra rights. So imagine if that was to be transferred as a concept of the United States, you would have seven cabinet members 
who are from all political parties present in the House, and they have to work together and make all decisions together, and as the philosophy goes, they basically go into a locked room, agree on everything, and only when they come out, you know, like voting for the Pope with the white smoke, they have to come out and they have to present their decision as a unanimous decision. So no one is allowed to present whether they have voted against or for the actual principle. Miriam, you're nodding approvingly. Does that work well for Switzerland? It does, because this is uh, they have to come to a consensus between all the parties. That means that... Uh, it's it's government by consensus. Yep. And uh, I, I think where our president is in the newspaper every day, and everybody's always talking about him, in Switzerland, many times, you don't even know who the president is at any given time. No, I, I don't remember. If you would ask me now... Please don't. <laughs> I, I Switzerland, it's me. a hole in the middle of Europe with quite an interesting story and a country that likes its position. Miriam Grobe, Fabian Ruger, thank you for helping us better understand what distinguishes Switzerland from the rest of Europe. Dankeschön. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. And in Switzerland, I guess you could say Dankeschön. You Dankeschön. could say... Merci. And you could say... Grazie. Merci. Danke. <laughs> it's a country with three languages. Three languages and a unique way of governing itself. Have you heard music? Brand useless sensation. They can be the land of France and BS Corporation. Next, let's take a closer look at the challenges facing the European Union. And a little later in the hour, we'll get insider perspectives on Hungary as an old world, high culture destination and to see what impact its political climate might have for visitors. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. With all the stress that comes with anticipating Britain's exit from the European Union and recent elections that look like they'll provide some fireworks in many European parliaments, I thought we should spend part of today's Travel with Rick Steves looking at what the lack of borders in the European Union was meant to accomplish. Let's hear what some of my European friends have to say about it. We're joined now by Hilburn Bies from Brussels and Martin Delandovitz from Wales. They're here to help us explore the real challenges the European Union's facing. Thank you, Rick. Thank, Thank you. you, Rick. Martin, I know that you have an interest in the EU. You're from Wales. What's your family story that gets you kind of tuned into Europe? Well, as you rightly said, Rick, my name is Polish, Lewandowicz. And uh, my father was uh, Polish, but he, in fact, was half Polish, half French. My mother was half English, half Welsh. And so I have, one can say, I might say that I'm a representative of the European Union in myself. And then you've uh, worked and lived in, in Wales. And Hilburn, how about you? What, how did you end up in Brussels? This was uh, through the career of my father, and then I remained there. But uh, I suppose I'm a little bit more transatlantic yet. I have a background uh, of my parents. My mother is Dutch. My father is American, but also of Dutch extraction. So it makes a big loop, if you will. And then uh, my university, then the beginnings of my career took me through the institutions of Europe and around them. And now I teach European politics. Hilburn, your family has been involved in the European Union. You work basically in, in, in European uh, organizations. What is the European Union and why was it created? The European Union was created at the end of the Second World War. In simple terms, we could say it was a way to prevent Europe from falling back into the type of resource scarcities per country that would incite them to go seek resources elsewhere. In other words, a way to get around fighting with each other. Yes, a common market linking the economies with the objective of, uh, of preventing war. Because historically, France and Germany, the two biggest economies, had every once in a while gone after each other and it's quite expensive. Yes, it's costly. Today, how big is the European Union and how would you define it? In 28 countries, there are 425 million European citizens. 
It constitutes an enormous market. And this is one of the things that many Europeans don't feel or are unable to feel exactly how important the institutions are for them. By having a common market and by having a common labeling policy and conformity, it means that we're negotiating with suppliers. It means that companies in America are producing things to our standards before they import them to our country. So we can have some standards that ignore environmental concerns, but if they don't meet European standards, it's it bad for our business. It won't be exported to us. And if it was just the Netherlands or Belgium that had the standard, we'd say, well, we don't really care. But if it's 400 million consumers, then it matters. Precisely. So the European Union lets you compete on a more equal basis with the United States. And it's an incredible utensil of soft power. That's a very impressive reason for the European Union, and your GDP is in the ballpark of the United States of America. Very close. We can compete, absolutely. Martin, if a European likes the European Union, what do they like about it? Well, Hilbert hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you go back to that time immediate uh, post-Second World War, we've been through the war experience together. Mm -hmm. We had that feeling of closeness. We had a debt to pay. You had people, disabled people, walking the street. Europe was awash with displaced people. My father came over at Dunkirk. By modern standards, he was an illegal immigrant, but because it was war, we were all together. And it's in that post-war feeling of togetherness that things like the European Union or the International Court of Justice were founded. I grew up at that time. I was born six years after World War II. And so your father was a, basically a, a Polish refugee that well, he wasn't, ended he, up in he England. He was a captain in the Polish army, okay. and he came off the beach at Dunkirk. Oh, my he goodness. flew planes in the, in the Battle of Britain. And you're one of the most Welsh people I know. Exactly. <laughs> but, it, but I'm not, I'm not going to tell you the story. We haven't the time. I don't think it's, it's a great story. I'll tell you sometime. But uh, to somebody that likes it, what it represents to me is that feeling of commonality, that yeah. feeling of togetherness, that feeling of wanting to help those less fortunate than us. And that debt that we felt we owed to the world after the end of World War II, all these institutions, the European Union amongst them, were set up at that time. And you ask the question, what do they like about it? I turn that on its head now, going towards modern times. For those people, these isolationists, Britain leaving the European Union, to me, that's an evaporation of social cohesion, both national and international. Mm. And that's a very significant thing. This is the trend, you could call it what you like, throughout politics, throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just don't want to be a part of it's that. It's kind of uh, bridges or walls. Well, but it's local particularism, it's the selfishness. You know, if you, if you mm -hmm. think about it, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, nobody would ever stand up and say, he can look after himself. He's got no legs. So this widow, they were muzzled. But now the muzzle has been taken off. Is These self-interested right? people. I, I didn't realize that. There was more cohesion, more compassion. Much, I mean, you think of the institutions established yeah. after World War II. Trans I can corroborate that. Insofar as um, people in Europe complain just as much about taxes as people in, in the United States do. My grandfather, who was born in '33 never complained about the taxes because he felt that the taxes he was paying too much, if you will, the, the surplus he was paying was going to be used for people mm. like him. Today, people complain about taxes because they feel that their taxes are going to be used to help people unlike them. And that's why they want to and, break down the institutions and, and that's can the serve big themselves. Difference. That's the big difference. If you think of the breakdown of the Soviet Union, as has happened, think of those countries, those 
let's say, less advantaged countries of the Soviet Union, Latvia, Lithuania, and so on, had there not been the European Union to accept them as members and to give them great financial help, they would have been left to suffer under their own oh, flags. They would have been less likely to have the courage less, to break away. Well, they may have broken away, but they would have suffered under their they own flag. Suffered. And the European Union is an equalizing mechanism which stands in contrast to these nationalist interests. So we're talking not just Brexit, we're talking this all over Europe. In Poland, in Hungary, we've got these um, rising movements that are mm-hmm. saying, let's be great, but they're really saying, let's be isolated and, and singular. If you think the European Union seeks to equalize if you think of degressive right. voting in the European Parliament, yeah. from which yeah. if you think of the way, oh no, these countries have less money than we have, we give them money, That's we right. help them get That's on so their feet. That's so fundamental to the European and Union. You've got net givers and net receivers. And think, of, think of the Schengen Agreement. Mm-hmm. So you have on one side the European Union trying to reduce the significance of national borders, mm-hmm. and nationalists trying to increase the significance. It's at odds. How, how can you do They can't and exist. Stronger yet, more than giving money to the lesser regions and countries in the European Union, mm-hmm. Union, this money is applied to infrastructural investments, which are going to give them an improved economy. So it's not giving no, money. We're not subsidizing industries to remain poor. It's investing, investing. in the team. Yes. Because it's only as strong as it's weak Bring, them up to steam. From an infrastructure yeah. point of view. We're getting perspectives on challenges facing the European Union from two of our longtime tour guide friends from Europe. They're explaining the benefits of being an EU citizen and the challenges they see to the political structures in Europe. Hilburn Bies is a university lecturer in geopolitics at the European Communication School in Brussels. And he also leads food tours in Belgium. Martin Delandovitz is a historian and tour guide from Northern Wales. He also leads tours all across Europe. So let's talk about the Euro. It's been in the news lately uh, because there's certain countries that uh, are having economic troubles and people are saying they're just not worthy of the Euro. What do you think? Is the Euro here to stay? Uh, is it all in all a good thing? Or is there a question about how, how broad it should be? Well, to me, Angela Merkel the politician with uh, more, let's be polite and say, courage than any other politician in Europe. Mm-hmm. A true soldier. A real statesperson. Oh, yeah. A wonderful person. Now, she understands that Europe seeks to equalize economies, and they're much easier to equalize if you have the same currency. Right. But I believe, I still believe, that's a mistake. Certain countries, and we're looking now ahead, and that's a problem facing the European Union, the creation of a two-tier European Union. Some so countries. a core that is strong enough to have yeah. the euro yeah. and a, a fringe that can rise and lower the value of its workforce according to the exchange rates? Yes, absolutely. Because that's the problem, I think, of the poor countries that have been able to freeload on the euro is you can't devalue their no, production no. so that they can no. play in the game fairly. In fairness, they haven't freeloaded. Countries like Spain, countries like Greece where you have problems. They had tremendous problems signing up for the euro. Mm-hmm. And now the lovely people, the Greeks, lovely people, the Spanish, mm-hmm. they are now again suffering. Yeah. As they're more slightly, you have to be honest, slightly more cavalier attitude to their national economies. Uh, so you're saying the euro may be a smaller zone, but it, it's here to stay. Smaller zone. Is it? Uh, come on, it's a very powerful currency. Of course. The question is, how big should it be? To me, there's no question there will be a European Union, but you know, there's questions about Britain, for example. What do you think? Is there an issue of how far east should it go? Should it include Turkey? You know, maybe not Britain. Uh, what is your thought about the, the finessing of it so you're at the right size? From the west, it's exciting to watch it expand. From the east, it could be threatening. How so? It's 
It's in Russia's interest. Take a globe and look at it from Moscow, and what you see of Europe is a peninsula extending off the Eurasian continent, a little place, a place that they like to represent as misogynated, disconnected from its history, as effeminate. By extension, Russia represents itself as strong, masculine, and historically robust. And many of these very nationalist parties, these movements in France or in Hungary or in Poland, are very excited about connecting with Russia to, to reinvigorate what they see as a real old-fashioned nation. Hmm. Okay, so there's, you've got to remember, we're looking at it from a Western point of view, celebrating democracy and trade. Yeah. And they're looking at it from, what, a, a kind of a there's, virility. There's a weak little place, a collection of countries, and they want to extend eastward towards the Dardanelles, which belongs to the Eastern Orthodox Church and, and belongs to us from the now, Russian perspective. When we think about the size of the European Union, the correct size of the European Union, correct meaning what is it ultimately going to be, when we think about Britain pulling away... If Britain does pull away, a lot of people thought the EU would be afraid that, oh, that would just be the beginning of a lot of countries that pulled away. But are we kind of seeing now that the European Union realizes they're standing between Trump and Putin, and if Britain pulls out, it just makes it more important than ever that Europe has to stay together? Martin, do you, do you know that dynamic I'm talking yeah, about? Is there a recognition that if we lose yes, yes, yes. Britain, it's more important than ever that we stay together, or is it, let's all jump off the ship? Um, I'd just like to, to just, it comes back to what you say in Trump-Putin thing and, and uh, what Hilbrand has just said. Here's how the Russian thing can play out. Six countries of the European Union get 100% of their natural gas from Russia. Uh, the largest importers of natural gas from Russia are Italy and France. Britain gets 50% of its liquefied natural gas from Russia. Now, Russia invades the sovereign territory of the Ukraine. Russia invades the sovereign territory of Georgia. Why do we not say boo? Why do we not say boo in a forceful way? Because we're dependent on the, the natural gas. Now, the borders, as you rightly said, if we have the Ukraine in the European Union, that's going to put the European Union in direct conflict with Russia and its aspirations. Now, that's a problem. As for Britain pulling out of the European Union, I think it makes little difference. If you actually do crunch the numbers, as I have, the difference of the numbers is that once Britain takes away its nine billion, ha, 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 you're going to have each man, woman, and child of the remaining European population paying another 20 euros per annum to maintain spending at the same rate. That's a significant figure, 20 euros, but it's not insurmountable. The effect on Britain, as the rest of Europe is going to be able to see, is going to be a lot far more damaging and last a lot longer, in my opinion, of course. So if Britain pulls out, it's going to be a bigger negative impact on the British, and the European Union can just uh, say, well, we're a smaller union and we carry on. Absolutely. I mean, do you think, I want to ask this again, though, do you think if Britain pulls out, originally there's a fear that other countries will pull out also, is there also a recognition that we've got Trump and Putin bookending Europe, Britain's mm. gone, it makes it more important than ever that Europe speak as one and, and Absolutely, and this union. is what I'm saying, that dependency on that uh, Russian crutch, if you like, mm -hmm. will prevent Europe from reacting strongly, and today prevents Europe from reacting strongly. But if Europe does not stand united, who will curtail the ambitions of Vladimir Putin? If it isn't Europe, possibly it won't be the United States of America with the current relationships that we're seeing across the ocean. And I'm afraid I feel very strongly that uh, Europe has to stand united on this. 
I'm inspired to play a little bit of Ode to Joy right now in the European National Anthem and say, go, you know, Europe, be strong. Because Europe really is picking up a banner when we look at an expansionist Russia. It is true. And if I may return quickly to your question about the correct size (laughs) of Europe, I think the question that we're missing is what is the correct rate of expansion. Perhaps Europe expanded too quickly, too early, because the opportunity was Eastern Europe is ready. We must take them, or accept them, take them in. Mm -hmm. We must take them in. And we did that very quickly. It's quite admirable, but we have to process that before we begin to think about any next stages. So Mm -hmm. the size of Europe is very good. The rate of expansion needs needs some time. It's the borders, the drawing of the borders, which is the problem. Where do you draw the borders? Cyprus. (laughs) You know. So, in other words, European Union, take a breath, consolidate, kind of get a sense of where's the world going, and just, you can grow later, but let's just get it together right now. Realistically, I don't see the European Union growing much more than it has now. I like the idea of the European Union consolidating in in more of a core that's not overreaching, but it's an interesting question. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Bies, Martin Delandovitz, two guides and historians from Europe, one from Wales, one from Belgium, about the challenges of the EU. Martin and Hilburn... I'd like your last thought. 50 years from now, where will the European Union be? Martin. It will be stronger than ever, ever healthier than ever, and Britain as a part of it. Hilburn, 50 years from now, where do you think the European Union will be? It's very difficult to predict 50 years in the future. I don't like to make predictions, but there will be vestiges of the institution, or the institution will be strengthened. They will still be there in 50 years. Nobody will have effaced it the European Union will likely exist in a form. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what form? Will there be a euro currency? Most likely. It's very useful to have a common currency. Would you agree that the the triumph of the European Union is is, uh, weaving the economies of France and Germany together so there's no more big wars? I think that was its first great victory. Mm -hmm. And now... The triumph of the European Union is to have created an enormous common market and then mm-hmm. to have ambitions that go beyond that into uh, a common political union that's going to also address social issues, uh, humanitarian issues, development, exterior relations, and uh, that's going to be the next great step. Those are the challenges, but its first mission has been accomplished. And perhaps stand strong for values that the United States once stood strong for. We would hope so. And to be a bulwark against a rampaging Russia. Perhaps, yes. We don't know. We don't know. Let's stay tuned. Let us hope that the European Union will serve as a beacon for international good practices. I love that. Thank you, Hilburn, and thank you, Martin. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. We enjoy hearing from our listeners who send us impressions from their travels in a haiku poem. There's a form for sending us yours at ricksteves.com slash radio. Here's a poetic peek at what some of our listeners traveling to Europe have been up to lately. Dr. Todd Horowitz of Tampa, Florida, was inspired to write this from Madrid after viewing Picasso's painting Guernica at Reina Sofia. Captivating awe, Spanish black and white mural innocent anguish. Kurt and Tiffany Schroeder from Portland, Oregon, marveled over the beautiful streets of Lisbon on a recent trip to Portugal. Sidewalks of Lisbon, miles and miles of black and white art beneath your souls. 
and Stacy Bukaukas of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, remembers an evening by the beach in Portugal. Port dances on my tongue. White-tipped waves gather to hear Fado's guitars. Guides from Hungary, join us next to take your calls about their spirited country at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Part of the charm of Hungary is in the flourish that your waiter provides even when you only ask for a glass of water. These polite traditions can remind you that this used to be the seat of a fabulous empire a hundred years ago. Today, Budapest still shows off its old-world elegance and style in everyday life. Yet the distinctive Hungarian language really does set them apart from their Slavic and German-speaking neighbors. To bring us an insider perspective on what you should know before visiting Hungary, we're joined now by Budapest-based tour guides George Farkas and Monica Posch. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I was just in Budapest, and the thing that I was so impressed by was how enthusiastic Hungarians are about strudel. Yes. What's with that, George? All the strudel in Budapest, oh, well, strudel well, shops. Well, we are very excited about the strudel, and we're very proud of our strudel. Uh, we always Not that say, you don't have grander things to concern yourself Yes, we do, <laughs> but um, you know, let's start with basic things. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, strudel is lovely, um, and uh, we really claim how beautiful our strudel is, and we always encourage our visitors to have as much as they can, because there's no dough. The dough of the strudel, of the Hungarian one, is filo dough. So ah. basically, all you eat is what's inside. It's normally sweet, right? It would have like uh, it apple can pie be, or uh, cherry yeah, pie. Yeah, well, it can be cherry, poppy seed, uh, walnuts. Mm-hmm. It can be uh, cottage cheese. But we have uh, also one which is called Hortobagi Palacinta, which actually has a uh, chicken paprikash. Monica, I was in Budapest. I went to the strudel house. But I didn't just want dessert, so there was one savory strudel. Uh, George mentioned there are such a great variety of different fillings in our strudels. He had not mentioned uh, the cabbage one, uh-huh. which for a first time I said, oh my God, cabbage, yuck. But uh, according to my experience, all of our tour members just loves it. And um, the poppy seed strudel, which is one of our basic fillings, uh, I don't know if you are aware that it actually contains a little bit of an opium, but uh, we don't care about it because uh, the poppy seed considered to be filled with natural minerals. So it's good and? Healthy, exactly. But in Budapest, uh, I always feel like when I go there, it's sort of like mother's cooking. It must have memories for you, even for your childhood. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, my mother is still uh, pulling the strudel and uh, sometimes with my mom, myself and my daughter, once a year before Christmas, we come together and we really make a traditional Hungarian strudel. Apple feeling, poppy seed feeling is something that we cannot miss. Okay, we could talk about strudel all day, but I do want to talk about the coffee houses because uh, when we go to Vienna, we, we have a great opportunity to enjoy traditional, elegant, old-world coffee houses. And uh, the twin capitals of the Austro-Hungarian Empire were Vienna and Budapest. Budapest has its own coffee shop culture for an elegant place to go to have a cup of coffee and a cake. Absolutely. But our elegant uh, coffee houses are really fantastic today for a little bit other reason. As Hungary had been invaded by so many invaders, whoever came to that hemisphere, that practically we Hungarians, we developed a special relationship with food and drink and coffee. 
And so today, I would say, whenever you go to a Hungarian coffee house, you have to be surrounded by crystal chandeliers and mm-hmm. uh, by velvet chairs, chairs and, and marble top marble tables. Top well, tables. I, I go to the famous one right on the big square. Zsabó. Uh, Zsabó. Yes. Exactly. Uh, every tourist goes there, and it's fantastic. And you step in, and you feel like royalty. Well, there's but, tapestry on the walls, and, oh, and also the history that it projects. I mean, you had all the famous composers uh, yeah. uh, having a, a coffee and cake by that table. So it's a celebration of Hungarian celebration. high culture. Exactly. And, and that's, it's that's where conversations happen. And, and that's why uh, we always say you're not paying for the coffee, you're paying for the venue, you're paying for the experience. Any normal person can afford it, go in there and have this amazing as well as, experience. Yes. Yeah. So actually, just finishing the thought, so since we had been invaded by so many invaders, so you can torture us to death during the day. But our 40 minutes coffee break is really a holy experience. You cannot violate the coffee break. (laughs) No, No. this is exactly what I mean. You can torture us to death anytime, but not during our coffee. That's why no paper cups. No paper cups. No paper cups. It has to be, again, perfect. It has to be a fine china. It really tastes different. It becomes a more elegant, respectful ritual. Exactly. It's a communing with your past, with your culture, with your people. Absolutely. And this is your piece of little hedonism per day, <laughs> if I could say that way, that 40 minutes coffee break in a beautiful uh, coffee house. Nice. So that's, again, it's a different approach. I love it. I love it. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Hungary, and we're talking with two Hungarian guides, Monica Posh and George Farkas. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jim's on the line in Marine on St. Croix in Minnesota. Jim, thanks for calling in. Thanks, Rick. Um, in uh, About three years ago, my wife and I, in one of our many bike trips in Europe, biked uh, through Hungary along the Danube River and really loved the experience. And I just wonder, the, the political environment seemed more benign then, not, not as much going on as what seems to be the case now. Should I feel any different about going back to Hungary, uh, given the way the political environment is today? You know, that's an understandable concern on people's minds as they're thinking about Hungary, because we read in the news about Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party, and there's this uh, sort of extremism and this challenge to democracy. And uh, I was just there a few months ago, and uh, it's a great concern for a lot of uh, Hungarians. And on the other hand, a lot of Hungarians appreciate what he's doing. Let's just ask our guides, what should, without getting into the, the whole thing about Viktor Orban, because he's sort of the local Trump and uh, everybody has their ideas about this and that, but just from a practical tourism point, George, what impact does that have on us when we're going to Hungary? I really loved the way um, Jim was phrasing his question uh, because he said that uh, it seems to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we need to stay at uh, because politics are internal politics and most of the times it uh, concerns the locals and mm-hmm. it steers the uh, everyday feelings and it upsets the locals. But uh, how the Danube is flowing and how the um, uh, parliament is lit up in the evening and how you take an evening cruise and how you have your mm-hmm. uh, paprikash and uh, you go to the baths has not changed and it's not affected uh, by everyday politics. I was just in Hungary for nearly a week and uh, I have the same experience. I have major concerns myself for these kind of uh, political movements and so on. But from my experience, it was no factor at all except something very interesting to talk about with people. Right. Because it's a good conversational topic. It's a great conversational topic. Monica, how about your experience? Absolutely. I agree with you. We all need to do our uh, internal politics duties 
Of course, it's a slow process, but in terms of enjoying life, in terms of coming over to Eastern Europe, yes, learning about our history maybe helps you to to think about uh, what maybe coming back to the state uh, will relate. But uh, in terms of taking fantastic uh, bike uh, roads mm-hmm. or enjoying or cafe houses, practically come over, enjoy it. It's okay. not going to affect. So without sounding like a promotion for Hungary, Gem, I, I think we're delicately dancing around the fact there's serious political issues going on in a lot of countries, but it, it really has, up until now, Absolutely. no impact on No on impact travelers. whatsoever. Uh, does that make sense, Jim? Oh, it, it does. And actually, all your talk prior to my call about coffee and strudel made it seem like almost a moot point. But, yeah, just um, have a few extra <laughs> poppy seeds. <laughs> yes. yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks for your call, Jim. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Jim. We're getting an insider's look at Hungary today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Monica Posh and George Farkas, and they come to us from Budapest. Casey's calling in from Prescott in Arizona. Hi, Casey. Hi, Rick, George, and Monica. I stumbled upon, and I use that term loosely because I was planning on going there, um, to Budapest when I was doing a four-month backpacking trip through Europe and instantly fell in love. And I'm now actually working on ways to um, live there. So my question is, once I get there, what small towns and villages should I make sure I visit? So you fell in love with, with the Hungarian or with Budapest, the city? Everything. Ah, Everything right. about it. So you want to go back, and you know Budapest is great. As I mentioned earlier, it is, you know, a lot of people go, they love Prague. But the, the real connoisseurs of Eastern Europe, I think Budapest is the surprise. It's kind of underrated uh, in a lot of people's minds. And you get there and you go, this is a great city. But the question, we all know Budapest. What if you want to find a small town nearby? What would you recommend, Monica? There are actually several options, Casey. First of all, comes into my mind St. Andrew, which is about to uh, 40 minutes drive from Budapest. That's in the so-called Danube Bend area. Mm. You know, the Danube runs a west-east direction and then suddenly, since it's rushing to the south into the Black Sea, it takes a big turn. So St. Andrew is a charming, historical Serbian-Greek Orthodox city was established during the Turkish occupation. So you will find a great mixture of different uh, cultures in that tiny little village. By the way, it's uh, also an artist historical city. St. Andrew, easy to reach from Budapest. Oh, yes, very easy. Again, it's actually less than 40 minutes. Um, Mm -hmm. You can rent a car. You can uh, take a commuter train. Also came into my mind Gödöllö, which takes you back to the Austro-Hungarian monarchy era. By the way, Gödöllö Palace was uh, the favorite runaway place for uh, Empress Elizabeth Sisi. And this palace uh, not just takes you back to the old uh, Baroque and later on uh, monarchy era, but because the palace was used by the Russians uh, during the Second World War, and then later on it was operating as an elderly home, just by visiting the palace, it gives you a great uh, historical review. Hey, George, Monica mentioned the Danube Bend. You know, historically, when people go to uh, Hungary, they see Budapest, and then all the tour groups and so on would take a a day trip up to the Danube Bend, and you've got two or three very touristy, famous uh, historic spots. uh, What are those? uh, St. Andrew, St. Andre in Uh uh, Hungarian, and uh, Visegrad and Estergom. Estergom. uh, Would be the the three famous emblematic towns. Describe, uh, just in a a nutshell, uh, Visegrad and Estergom. Uh, both of them are very picturesque. Um, uh, Visegrad would be basically accommodating um, castle ruins today. Uh, you go up there and then you beautifully see the Danube band. 
uh, that used to be uh, the royal seat. That's so where a great, our crown a great view used of to be the, spanned. A great view of the Danube River. From up there, yes. Um, and that's where our crown used to be held. Okay. Uh, so it's filled with history um, and, there. And Estragom's a big uh, Catholic center, isn't it? Very big uh, Catholic center. Yeah. Um, that's where we have uh, our largest um, basilica. And both of them are, are eager for the tourism. They're cute little cobbled areas for shopping nice. for the tour yeah, groups. Yeah. And uh, um, sort of the obvious thing for tourists restaurants and uh, great day trips, actually, nice. uh, from Budapest. Casey, I hope that helps. Absolutely. Somehow you guys made me even more excited to get back. <laughs> hey, you Sounds know, good. one town I really was pleasantly surprised by is Pitch. Mm-hmm. And it's not that close, but I think there's good connections. Oh, yes. How yes. far is, how far is uh, by train to about Pitch? No, two and a half, three, three hours. Three hours, three hours. about. And it's, yes. to me, it's a fascinating city that no American tourists seem to go to. That's true. That's and true. And it's just recently been uh, the uh, cultural capital of Europe. So, so. What, what is unique about Pitch? Uh, Actually, Church? it's a university town, Yeah. Um, uh, number one. Basically, it's a little bit of a, of mirroring uh, big town Budapest. Yeah. So you come down and then you see the city with a much uh, smaller speed. And it's real Hungary. It's, it's, yes. it, it, there's no tourism there. No, it's, it's not a university. Really, no. P-E-C-S? Yeah. There you go, Casey. Have a good time. Thank you so much, you guys. You bet. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with George Farkas and Monica Posh about Hungary. George, I mentioned earlier that the Hungarian language is sort of unique. Uh, it's different from the Slavic languages around it. Could very you, much so. Could you talk just very clear and slow like a, a teacher? Count one to ten in Hungarian so we can get a little dose of your language. Okay. Egy, kettő, három, négy, öt, hat, hét. There's no uno, dos, or eins, zwei, try in there. Not a hint of it. (laughs) We're we're enormously challenged. Oh, Uh, my goodness. And, Monica, is there any fun little tongue twisters? Or what do you say that's fun? Well, would you like to really hear a melody or some really tongue twister in Hungarian? Like, for example, Oh, my goodness. I want to hear a tongue twister. Say that again slowly in Hungarian and then tell us what you said. So, csalitban csicsergés, csatogás, csobogó, csermely, csobogás, csonka, cserfán, csúf, csóka, csereg, cserkész fiúk, csapata, cseveg. And it says uh, that uh, in the little forest, uh, little birds are uh, singing and uh, little lake is, uh, can be seen. So practically, it is just an interestingly put uh, uh, tongue twister. Little, little birds in but the forest. Actually, since uh, Hungary had just uh, received the title that Hungary is considered to be one of the most difficult language in a world, and you may wonder why, you know, I mean, there are grammatical rules, uh, there are exceptions, you read the rules, and then you learn the language. So what could be so difficult? Well, the problem is that uh, we have more exceptions from the rules than rules itself. Oh, I so, don't like that. really frustrates me when I'm trying to learn a foreign language. It's, it's this way, except when it's not this way. Well, you are not the only one who is frustrated. I'm trying to find uh, the solution. Uh, how come that uh, the Hungarian society is still, even in 2018, is completely homogene? Probably because uh, everybody else uh, who had not uh, learned the language uh, in the language environment, it's almost it's impossible to learn. So they find other areas. So uh, that to, has an actual impact yes, on the does. homogeneity, on, on the demographic makeup of Hungary. Yes. Because your language is harder to learn than German. Absolutely harder to learn than any other languages, actually, in the European environment. What can we learn (laughs) from the Hungarian language about the Hungarian people? Does it give us any insight into the, the culture? 
language sets the mind. Mm. And so if we have a language which has so many unexpected twists, then please uh, don't be surprised that if you feel things which are unexpected in our culture, in our history, in our everyday life as well. If you come to our Roman Catholic coronation church and the interior of the church is uh, decorated with pagan tribal Hungarian motifs and so on. In other words, Monica, you're saying uh, when you walk into a a Roman Catholic church, it has a deeper heritage than Christianity. There was uh, religious undertones that survive to this day that are actually the pagan Magyar roots. Yes, yes. And the Magyars just came a thousand years ago, right? The Magyars are the Hungarians. Right. Seven Hungarian tribes arrived in 896 in the ninth century. Okay, so to, they came about 1,200 years ago from way over by Mongolia or something like yes, this? Yes, actually, a whole bunch Volga of... Volga and Kama Rivers area. Therefore, we have this language sitting in the middle of all these uh, more Western languages. Right. And right. It's, a, it's part of the Finno-Ugoric language group. Oh, okay. So there's now, only three uh, that are in Finland, Estonia, and Hungary. It reminds me of the independent spirit. It's just hard to defeat the Hungarian spirit. For the Soviet Union, the Hungarians were just the biggest problem, and you actually had to were able to have your own uh, goulash version of communism and so on. Uh, what, what is it about the Hungarian independent spirit? I think uh, the Hungarians would really want to express themselves, and they don't want to be compressed. One of the examples, if you're bringing uh, something unique up, is uh, how we do our beds. Um, how you do uh, your beds? Yeah. So, like making uh, your bed. And uh, how our bed sheets are prepared. And I, I'd like to share a, a personal experience. Very first time we came over to the United States of America and we went into, I don't know if it was a hotel or someone's house, we were introduced to our bedrooms and we went in. And then it took us time to actually decide where we go. Like we lifted one layer, another layer, and another layer, and we couldn't decide between where we go because you have where these... you put your body between exactly. the seats. Where do we fit in in this bed setting? <laughs> They're and all tucked in too tight. Exactly, and then you had these sheets, and then all we have is basically a a cover sheet uh, which sits on the mattress, and then we have a a single duvet which is top to bottom uh, sides uh, basically a standalone unit, and it's not tucked in. So we can easily lift it up and then go under and then our feet are are free. We can't have our feet compressed down at the end. And still today, when we go to a hotel and get up in the middle of the night, I have a hard time to pull the sheet out from the bottom. To free to, your feet. To, exactly, to have well, our feet Monica, flying. Is that, is that <laughs> just George or is this Hungarian? No, no, no. Practically even today, even I'm putting up the don't disturb sign because uh, the housekeeping uh, ladies are tucking it beautifully in my bed and every single day I'm struggling it out because uh, I need freedom during the night. So I can't be oppressed underneath the tucked in the bed sheet. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, just this not is the even, way it is. Not even there. <laughs> so don't tuck my comforter in. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating Hungarian culture with our guides, George Farkas and Monica Pasch. Kosonom, is that thank you? Kosonom, very Sivashen. good. Sivashen. 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 And I'll see you in Budapest. Thank, thank you. Thank you. See you soon. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We'd love to get an original haiku poem that you've written about the impressions you get from your travels. There's a link for sending us yours in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, 
and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.